Paul has the habit of basically, in, at least in, as it comes through in English, in creating these massive, long, run-on sentences that just seem to, every statement has a therefore or a connecting word going back to the previous context. So backing up to give more context to the current passage, which is chapter 5, verse 1, is kind of hard to do because if you back up just a few verses, uh, like to verse 13, he says, but having the same spirit of faith. It you're jumping into the middle of a conversation still. And you back up a little bit earlier, at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, he says, therefore, that's the concluding uh, of an argument. But it's actually not the concluding of an argument because he keeps on building and building. So exactly where to jump in to help set the context is not easy. What we are in the middle of, though, is Paul trying to encourage a group of people to have courage, to have faith, and to not lose heart. If there's a message that we need to hear in this day and age in which we find ourselves, it is to have courage and to not lose heart, to be bold, to be courageous, to see clearly what's in front of us, the challenges and the sins and the the darkness of the, the surrounding culture and world around us, and to face it with courage, not fear, and to not lose heart, not lose yourself along the way, not get discouraged and give up. So I'd like to back up just to set that to chapter 4, verse 1, and that's just where I'm going to drop you in, where he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, this gospel ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. He then goes through and he gives us somewhat of a superlative, extreme example of what it is to to continue to push through trial, tribulation, and suffering. If you think you've had it rough in life, uh, I would be hard-pressed to believe you've had it worse than Paul. Now, I don't mean that in, in regard to chronic illness or something like that. That's not really in view much throughout this, throughout Paul's uh, explanation of all of this. What he's primarily talking about is the persecution and suffering that he endures as a result of his testimony and faithfulness to God. Most of us... I've never known anyone who comes close to this, who has suffered this degree of anguish for proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes through and he he highlights a bit, and then later on in the book, he actually delineates, he, he gives us a list of the things he's gone through, and that gives it a little bit more weight as you read it. You come down to verse 7, and that's where he said, but... We have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested, made visible in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Like a soldier on the front line, knowing that at any moment he can die, such was the ministry and the life that Paul actively pursued. He could have backed away from that like many others have and did, but he did not. Instead, he pursued that. So that, for what purpose did he do this? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What that does 
What he's pointing out here, what that does is that gives authenticity to the message you speak. If your life is nothing but roses and butterflies, then when you start telling somebody about trusting in God, that that rings kind of hollow. It's kind of like a billionaire when they start trying to sympathize with our issues. They start to act like they kind of understand your struggle. You're like, what are you talking about? Like, what planet are you living on? We're not, we're not in the same era. We're not, we're not living in the same spots. Instead, Paul put himself in a position where he was actively being pursued. That crushing that happened to him authenticated the message. He says he, he bears in his body the marks of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, so that no one can say he's a part-timer. No one can look at Paul and say he's in it to get rich. He's, he's there to, to get wealthy. He's in ministry so that he can have a private jet or something like that. Paul was never in that category. Instead, his message is validated by the fact that regardless of what you did to him, he was content and he was joyful and he was manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. He says further in verse 12, pulling that together, so death works in us, but life in you. As he's dying, that is bringing about, giving birth to this ministry among them that is bringing about a resurrection and regeneration in their lives. But, verse 13, having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. We've been compelled to speak because of what we know. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what gives us hope in our own resurrection. A certainty in that. He says further in verse 15, For all things are for your sake so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Not to the intrinsic Value or glory of God, we can't add or take away anything from the nature, the essence of who God is, but to the manifest glory of who God is. That is our ability to praise him and to lift up his name in the world among sinners and among saints. Verse 16, he then pulls it together. He says, therefore, because of these truths, because of what I proclaimed, we don't lose heart. We don't give up. We don't turn back. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let me pray. Our Father... Assist me to proclaim your truth. May we have ears to hear today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's always been the story of the saints of God, what he will later say in this text. That is that the righteous will live by faith. Always. It's always been true, always will be true. God doesn't give us every detail of everything we need to know about pretty much any subject. If you notice, he doesn't give us everything we want to know about creation. He doesn't explain the details of everything. He doesn't tell us exactly how this transpired. He doesn't tell us the details of Noah's ark. I mean, how did Noah 
get rid of all the animal stuff, right? How did he get rid of all those animal droppings? How did he dispense with that? How did he feed them? How did he, you know, give them all something to drink? How did that work? He doesn't give us everything. He gives us enough to trust him. And then we are with that trust. We're supposed to move forward with faith. Adam had enough to trust God. There was a temptation put before him. But he had enough His knowledge of God was sufficient for him to have faith and believe in in God's voice rather than what his eyes saw. It was no different for Noah. He had to live by faith. God had given him enough that he could trust him. Abraham, Abraham set forth from his own people, went out, and he didn't know everything. He didn't understand how God was going to do it. God didn't explain the details of the process. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to wait till you're 100 before I work this out for you. He didn't didn't explain much of anything to him, honestly. He gave him enough to trust him. So Adam, Noah, Abraham had to live by faith. And you can go through one saint after another whose example we're supposed to follow. We don't follow everything they did. We never were meant to do that. God is the hero of Scripture, not Abraham, not Moses. None of these guys, their, their lives give us a glimmer. They give us a hope. They shine the way, but God is the hero. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, and it is to him that our eyes look, and to no other, ultimately. So the righteous have always been called to live by faith, to not have every answer, to not know every answer to every question that we have. We know that's, that to be very true in the life of Job, Job wanted answers, and God gave him exactly none. Job went through awful, awful suffering, a superlative, again, of suffering that none of us are going to encounter. Lose everything he had in one day, except he got to keep his bitter wife. Job is an example for us here to see, look, you you can endure. The righteous will live by faith. Job did not get the answers he sought. Instead, what he found was, what I need is not the answer. What I need is God. I need God. So when I pray for the people on our prayer list, when when we think of them, how ought we pray for them? Well, we do pray that this suffering would be alleviated, that they wouldn't have to pass through the fire of, of the trial that they're going. I don't really want that for them, but apparently God does. And I know that ultimately I'm not going to make it alive out of this life unless the Lord comes, and may he come now. certainly looks like it as I look around the world that he's coming now, but maybe not. And in the in-between, it is my job to live by faith, to trust him. The problem is we live in a sighted world. We live in in a world with lots of shiny objects. We live in a world with lots of alluring things and and attractive things that that are pulling us in. And we also live in a world with a body that is falling apart. And you don't see it that much when you're young. But the older you get, the more you realize this thing is decaying, man. You know, you realize, think, I, I hit my peak a few years ago and it's not coming back. You know, the day is past for me to 
figure certain things out. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get yoked. I'm not going to get huge like I thought I would. You know, I'm not going to pull off certain things. I'm not going to be this, this athlete that I thought I was going to be or whatever it is that's in your head. You're not going to get there once you get so old, you start to see the decline. I remember Muhammad Ali talking about, he said, as he got older and he was getting hit in the head a lot, he said, look, I can still see the punches. Because if you know Muhammad Ali, he could he float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, baby, right? He could move. He could get out of the way of things that you'd like. How did he avoid that? Well, he said as he got older, he goes, look, I can still see the punches coming. I just can't get out of the way anymore. <laughs> they're, they're, they're clipping me now instead of missing. It, you decay. We live in a sighted world, and it's, it's amazing that as we get older, instead of softening in our hearts and listening more and realizing the reality of what God has said about the decaying nature, about the, the results of the curse within us, that is that we are falling apart, instead of softening to that and going, you know, I think he was right. Maybe I should listen. Instead, what we do is we harden our hearts and we refuse to listen. And I, eh. You hardened your heart when you were young and strong and thought you were invincible and you were unwilling to listen to him. So that gave birth to a lifestyle of ignoring God. And now when you need him in your weakness, even in your acknowledged weakness, you won't, you won't, you won't bend the knee. Why? Pride. Arrogance. Hubris. It's the human condition. We have in front of us here a text where Paul starts talking about our body. He moves from this towering text, you might say, this, this section, speaking of, look, we don't focus on the things that are seen. We, f- we focus on the unseen. And then there's this kind of tension. You ought to, you ought to recognize that because of the frailty of your own flesh, You ought to be able to see it. As one who lives by faith, you're given a daily reminder, if you have weakness in the flesh, of the fact that this earthly body is not it. This isn't final. And some of the older of us can say amen to that. That this isn't it. This isn't the height of the beauty in which you will one day possess. Paul gives us now like this mixed metaphor of putting on a building as if it were clothing. He, as a tent maker, he starts talking about his earthly tent. Let me read the text here, verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Kind of a weird thing in there that I'll need to explain to you here in a minute. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Again, an interesting metaphor he gives you there that what's mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Back in verse 1, he starts out by saying, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. How do they know that? Any of you 
good students of scripture, how would they know that if this earthly tent, this temporary dwelling of the body is torn down, we will have a building from God? You getting that in the Old Testament? You want to try to prove that particular idea from the Old Testament? Well, you're going to have a hard time. No, what he's referring back to primarily is the teaching that he himself gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's no place in scripture like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 regarding the resurrected body. What is our future dwelling, our future house going to be? What's it going to manifest as? What's it going to be like? How's that all going to work? Well, 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul here says, so for we know there's a confidence that he's expressing here in what he just taught them some months earlier. This is putting his words, his written letter to them in a, in a same level as the rest of revealed scripture. For we know that if this earthly tent, we know that's going to happen because what I already taught you about this, they understand this teaching that this earthly tent, um, I don't know, how many of you like camping? And I don't mean glamping, Rally. I don't mean glamping. <laughs> no air mattresses, no fans with you. You know, I mean real camping, like out in the woods and you just have to suffer and live in pain and have uh, mosquito bites all over you and poison ivy covering you, all that kind of camping. Most people don't enjoy that a whole lot. Now, it's a few of you, you just like pain because you're ascetics. But anyway, most of us don't like camping. Why? Well, because you have a house. And you have a comparative standard. You have a lovely, comfy bed that you paid too much for. You, have you seen the, the price of mattresses? What in the world is going on with the mattress? Anyway. I don't know how they're charging so much. Anyway, they, the, we have lovely homes that keep us warm and cozy and comfortable. And you like your bed. You got your spot in your bed. If you're like me, you've worn a spot in the mattress or you just kind of drift to it. And we, we don't like a tent that much because it doesn't provide the comfort of a home, of a house. It doesn't have that permanency to it. If you get a stiff breeze, my girls and I were watching a little video the other day of this, uh, this tent, great big tent, looked like about a 10-person tent, and uh, the wind apparently caught it, and the whole tent just goes up through the air, about 50 feet in the air, flying over the campground. And like, oh, wow, I hope no kids were in that. <laughs> a tent isn't secure. It isn't that safe. It's not very lasting. And you, you're very thankful when you get out of it. If you're me and Priscilla anyway. You're very thankful to be out of it. To roll that thing back up and use it in five years. The next time. So he's pointing out to us. You know that what you're living in currently. It's a tent. Paul himself was a tent maker. He mended tents, fixed them for people. Uh, in that time in which he lived, there was a great number of people that still lived in tents. You had Bedouin people and others who, who still were nomadic and still had tents all the time. So Paul had a, a job, full-time job doing that, mending tents. 
Uh, it's a very obvious illustration for them to see that if you, if you can make the trade, the transfer from a tent to a home, you, you see the advantages of it, and you also get the idea that one thing is meant to move around to be nomadic and to be taken down and, and doesn't last that long as compared to a home. And he says of that building that it's a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, we see some of the the great value of this based upon the contrast of what he says in verse 2. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Paul certainly knew what it was to have a broken down body. He knew what it was to have pains and sufferings physically. He knew what it was to groan with pain. I had uh, that thing in my neck, the uh, herniated disc deal uh, recently, and I I heard old people talk about those things before, herniated bulging disc and stuff like that, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's too bad. (laughs) Oh, that that sounds rough. You know, but it's, oh, I'll pray for you. Did I? And then I had it. Woo! That was some pain. When it was at its peak, it was like, wow, that is worse than breaking my arm. And when you're in pain, the groans are common. When you're in chronic pain, ongoing issues, groaning is, is there. Paul knew what it was. He understood what it was, and and the more you experience that, the more you feel what he's talking about, and you can really relate to what he's saying. I don't want to, to dwell forever in this body. So in their time... The, the common thinking of the Greek culture. Now, he's writing to Corinth. If you can remember Greece, if you've got your geography brain on at all, you can remember Corinth, and then it's right near Athens. Athens? No, Athens. And uh, it's only 50 miles from there, actually. So it's a few days travel in their day and age away. Uh, the ideas and the, the classical thinking and stuff emanated from that great city of Greece, of Athens. And um, all the, the concepts and all that trickled down, and Corinth was like a byproduct. It was always hearing these ideas. And the, the general thinking of the time, even in, in, among Romans, was that the body is a prison for the soul. And the soul longs to be set free, to live disembodied. And that somehow once this thing, the shell died, now you were really free. And we might think, well, that, that's a weird idea. But we still express this same concept quite often. I've seen, I remember when uh, Robin Williams committed suicide. The hashtag and the, the, the general conversation about it was, Jeannie, now you are free. So their concept was the general thinking, and I hear this a lot when people commit suicide, oh, now they're free from their pain and suffering. Really? Well, that's that that same kind of idea, probably not as well uh, built up with philosophy and whatnot in our time, Uh, but at the same same idea is still there. That is, once this, this shell dies, well, now the spirit is now free to kind of go do as it wants, and we joke about like haunting people and all of that as a ghost or, or something 
to that effect, but that's just nonsense. Paul actually draws a distinction between what the Bible teaches and the culture of the time teaches. And this is important because kind of in this, in this day and age in which we find ourselves, we find a lot of Christians trying to find as much common ground as they can with the pagan culture. Where is it we can agree? Where can we be on the same page so that we can say the same thing? Paul doesn't do that. He could have just left it. But instead, he draws this distinction in verse 3. He says, inasmuch as, as having put it on, we will not be found naked. Look, I'm, I'm not looking forward to being disembodied. That's not the, the thrill. I'm not excited about not having a, a body. No, indeed, in this, while we're in this tent, verse 4, we groan being burdened. Yes, this body is decaying. Yes, this body is falling apart. Uh, we being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. So the, the desire is to have an ultimate clothing. Or as Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in our hearts. There's something in you that isn't wrong, isn't sinful, that actually wants to have a permanent dwelling, a house from God. That's not a bad thing. It's, a, it's not a, a sinful thing to want that to come to fruition. And in their day, and their age, that's exactly what it was considered. There were false teachers in the church who were Gnostics and others, or proto-Gnostics, that were teaching that kind of idea. The body is sinful and the spirit is good. You can do whatever you want with the body was a common teaching. You could sin in any way you want with the body, but just as long as it doesn't touch the soul, it's fine. Well, how do you parse that out? I don't know. Exactly how they had that argument. How, how did they chop that up? I don't know. We do the same garbage today with, with, with sex and gender. If somebody a thousand years from now reads what, what's going on right now, they're going to be like, they separated what? You're going to be confused by that. So in their time, in their place, what was very common was to think that somehow this body is sinful. No. This body is a shell, though, and it's not permanent. The way he says it there at the end of verse 4 is that, that, uh, that we, since we don't want to be found naked, we don't want to be disembodied, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So you see, basically it's kind of like putting on a new suit, putting on a new set of attire. This body will be swallowed up by life. It will not ultimately be dying. There is a, um, a certain type of sadness that I think is, is fitting when you go to a funeral and you see some person that you always, like your whole life as you knew them, they were old. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like the whole time you knew them, you knew them for 20 years or something like that, and the whole time you knew them, they, they appeared old to you, especially when you're young. So they were like 75, crazy old, right? They were like 75, and then when they died, they were 95, right? And, and you have forgotten what they, they looked like even 20 years ago. Then you go to their funeral, and you see either the slideshow or you see the pictures in the hallway if, if the funeral's here at church, and you look back and you see them all those years ago, and they were young and they were beautiful. They were strong. They had all this life in front of them. And there's something there that we ought to see. It's, it's not right for us to fall apart. It's not good. This is the result of the curse. 
This is the result of sin. It is destroying. Death is in our bones. And it ought to provoke us to long for the permanent dwelling that God has for us, a body that is not made with hands, that is truly eternal in the heavens. As I said, in the sighted world, man, we can get stuck on trying to perfect this temple. We can get so stuck. It's amazing to watch the, the, the young and the beautiful and the, the famous try to hang on to it for as long as possible. As they inject themselves with Botox and plastics and other such things, they just forever are trying to. Look, it's not going to ultimately last. It might work a little for a few years, but it takes over. You can't stop time. It's always wins. You're always going to fall apart. And who is it that set us up for this? He said back in verse 2, we do groan, we do long to be clothed, we don't want to be naked, drawing the distinction with the culture. Again, he reemphasizes the groaning in verse 4. We have a right desire to be uh, to see this mortality that we dwell in to be swallowed up by eternal life. That is the full extent of salvation. We are delivered now from the power of sin, but we will be delivered from even the presence of sin in the future, and our bodies will reflect that reality. Isn't that awesome? Even your body will be a reflection of the removal of sin and all of its damage. Now, verse 5. He who, has, or he who prepared us for this very thing, for this very purpose, is God. What very purpose? The purpose to have a glorified body. And he gave us his spirit as a pledge. Well, you know, the thing is, when you give a pledge, generally, humanly speaking, a pledge is a... Um, a visible marker, like a down payment on a house. You go in, and if, if you go in to the banker and you say, here's my pledge, and you do that and you just tap the paper, I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I just gave you my pledge. It's a spiritual pledge. I don't think any bankers are going to take you up on that. We think of a pledge or a guarantee as something that's tangible, something at least written down and with a contract and, and something that we can hold on to, something that we put in the safe and we can break out if things don't go right. So what kind of a pledge is the Spirit? This is, this is our great hope. All our hope for a resurrected body lies in this, in this pledge. The resurrection of Christ is the, the stated testimony of it. It's where our hope lies, but the Spirit is this supposed to be this manifested pledge or guarantee of this future body and resurrection, which we will enjoy. Um, I kind of want a visible proof. Is that just because I'm carnal? Well, maybe. Is that just because I'm, I'm stuck in the flesh and I'm still living by sight? Yeah, maybe. But quite often, God gives us visible reminders of what he's doing. 
So in what sense does the Spirit actually, uh, as a guarantee, does it actually manifest itself in your life? You might say, how is it that I know that I'm saved? How is it that I know that I'm a, I'm a child of God? Well, in this, with this down payment that I can't see, let's, let's consider what it is that I can see from the Spirit. The, the fruit of the Spirit, we can, I don't know if you've ever heard the fruit of the Spirit put to a song. I, I thought about making you sing it, but I don't think I want to lead it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So that, on one hand, doesn't seem to be... Um, Visible. But on the other hand, it, it's, it's entirely visible. See, the, the, our life is to be demonstrating those truths throughout. One of the fruits of the Spirit that I left out, I was just thinking of, is gentleness. Gentle, how, how is that not manifested? How is the fruit of the Spirit not seen? If you're like me, I grew up kind of rough as a younger brother, overcompensating like younger brothers often do, pushing too hard, that sort of thing. And if, the, if I can testify to something that the Lord is doing in my life, I can look at, am I gentle with my wife? Am I gentle with my kids? And it has to be a comparative standard to who I used to be, not to maybe the most gentle soul I've ever known. See, I'm not what I was. I, I am being conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ. So are you as a faithful child of God. As a, a consistent child of God, the fruit of the Spirit is manifested, and that's a far greater proof, a far greater guarantee than just about anything else you can point your finger at. Do you have joy in the midst of trial? And I don't mean that you just always reside there. I mean, do you labor to find it? Do you find that you're not complaining so much about the trial and because you find that you can actually have some joy in it and through it? Are you thankful that in the trial, the pain that you're experiencing, you're able to actually testify of the goodness of God to a lost and, and crooked generation that wants nothing more than to discredit your Savior? Aren't you thankful for those opportunities that he affords you? You very rarely get an opportunity to truly showcase the glory of God and what he's doing in your life when everything's going well. Instead, he gives us these opportunities not only to see that our own faith is real, our own life before him isn't just a figment of our imagination, but very rarely do we get a better opportunity to proclaim and to authenticate what he's doing in us than when we are in problems, when we are in trials. I, uh, recently, I was on a social media account, and I decided to uh, everyone was pro-Palestinian on some thread, and I decided, why not? I decided to support Israel in there. And I threw out some comment, and I've, I've never had people come back at me like this in my life. I think it's hilarious, actually. They're just like, you're a moron. Get a new brain, idiot, and all this stuff. Like, you should die, you know, and I hope you die. All this kind of stuff. I was like, wow, they're a little fired up. They think they know what's right on this. See, look, if I had an opportunity to proclaim my love or whatever for God's people over in Israel, and all that was going on was everybody was amening it, like, yeah, preach, and everybody was in agreement with me, well, there's not much of a test for how real that is. I'm just doing what people applaud then. 
If all you do is proclaim Jesus to the choir, to a group of people that just want to hear it, there's not a whole lot of a test for that because everyone's just like, oh yeah, preach. But when you have the opportunity to say it to people who think you're a moron for saying it, there's your opportunity. There's your chance to shine in the darkness. Not saying we don't shine when we're together, but the point of the church when it is gathered is to equip the saints so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry. We have a crazy idea here at our church. We don't spend much money on advertisement and, and all the different forums and formats that are out there. We're audacious enough to believe that our best event or our best program for actually getting the word out about our church is you. As an evangelist, to tell people of the gospel, we expect all of you, including myself, that when we have opportunity, we speak of the hope that is in us. Because how can we not? That's what Paul was saying earlier. I believe, therefore I spoke. I believe the gospel will change lives. And therefore I speak. And more than just changing lives, it'll glorify God. And that's what I long for. I want to see our church packed out, not because I think numbers are cool, but because I love to hear people lifting their voices to God. I love that our church hasn't been overrun by music that's so loud you can't hear the people around you sing. I, I, I get it. I love concerts too, somewhat. I can, I can vibe with that to a certain degree. At the same time, to hear the voices of the saints of God lifting up the name of God is awesome. And eternity will be filled with such things. The people of God crying out the glory of his name. What an opportunity we have in affliction to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, even though we can't yet see that body he's going to provide for us. We have to live by faith in that. And that means there's a certain amount of, of recklessness, as the world might see it, that we might live with. Paul is not trying to live his best life right now in the first century here. Paul's not doing the things. He's not out there lifting weights all the time and trying to be in great shape and, and making sure he's getting the right amount of sleep a night. And he's not doing the things that make for his best, you know, physical form here in this life. He kind of is casting that aside for the cause of Jesus Christ. He's willing to sacrifice those things. Bodily discipline is of some value, but godliness it, it surpasses it beyond comprehension. So the child of God ought not be so preoccupied with trying to keep this temporary tent in tip-top shape. Instead, we ought to have our eyes fixed on the eternal body, the eternal glory, the eternal dwelling that awaits us. He prepared us for this very purpose. And he gave his spirit as a pledge. And in our flesh, we oftentimes... Don't look at that guarantee of the Spirit as all that special. In our flesh, we are looking for all the wrong things. We look for material blessings. We look for our health to be right, for our finances to be right, for our retirement program to look proper, for our doctors to figure out our problems or whatever. In our flesh, we're looking for many of the wrong things. When in the middle of that pain you're going through, there is the opportunity to do what the world is supposed to marvel at. For you to have joy and hope regardless. Regardless of the problem, regardless of the frustrations of life. How can I know 
how can I be so confident in the work of God on our behalf? If you will, turn over to Philippians chapter, or yeah, Philippians chapter one. Just a few pages over here to your right, Philippians chapter one. This is another one of these towering texts. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And your guarantee is as good as the one who offers it. It doesn't matter if I give you a guarantee if I'm a shady character. Any of us who've been paying attention to politics long enough that have lived long enough to look at our politicians and see what they do ought to be a little burned out by the nonsense guarantees of politicians. They give campaign pledges, they stand on platforms, they say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then they get in office and they do squat. And sometimes they do the exact opposite. It's, remar- it's remarkable. The problem isn't, it, it, it's, it's as clear as this, you are trusting in the wrong person. The guarantee that I will make good on what it is that I say is bound up in the nature and the character of the one who offers the guarantee. So when God says that he, he begin, when he begins a good work in you, he will perfect it, you can stand on it. And he will carry you through regardless. And he gives you his spirit as a pledge. Has he begun a good work in you? Has he freed you from your sin? Now I know we're kind of the frozen chosen at Southern View Chapel. I know we don't respond much to the preacher when he gets going, but I'm not Gary, and I need you to reciprocate. So let me ask you that question again. (laughs) Has he begun a good work in you? Has he freed you from the burden of your sin? Has he removed the weight of self-righteousness, of always trying to prove yourself as though you are truly righteous in and of yourself, has he freed you from that nonsense? Has he given you an alien righteousness outside of yourself that you could never attain? Has he given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Has it been applied to your account? So that you know that you are blameless and faultless before the throne of the eternal God. Has he, has God Almighty canceled the debt of your crimes against him that have been declared to you in his law? Has he canceled that debt? And has he given you the hope of eternal life in the name of his son? Finally, let me ask you this. Has he given you a new heart with new affections for his goals, his kingdom, and his glory. 
then that was not of you. Let that sink in. If that's where you are, then he has begun a good work in you and he will see it through to completion. And the guarantee is as good as the one who offered it. And if you're struggling with whether you can trust him, that's why he gives you this enormous book. So that you can become familiar with your heavenly father. So you can know whether you can really believe him. Can I trust him or not? Is he a fraud or is he the real deal? Is he the one thing that I know I can trust in all of life? We have, a bent, we have a broken culture with people that have broken lives that have seen one person lie and mistreat them after another after another. And that is true. So then look for what's real. Look for the God who doesn't change, who's immutable and righteous, holy beyond comprehension, untouched by the filth of sin and who cannot lie. Look to him. For the guarantee, look to his word to overcome even how you feel. And let his word be that which is true of you more than how you feel even now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we will have our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith until he comes. May it be today. Maranatha. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for an opportunity to look at your word and to be encouraged by the truth there. Lord, we thank you that this body is temporary and that the eternal dwelling is coming. And we know this to be true because we know you who says it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.